thanks for checking out the New Life Speakers podcast. All of our speakers are recorded live at our AA meeting held on Friday nights at 8 p.m. at the Atonement Church in Wyomissing, Pennsylvania. More information about recovery and our upcoming events can be found on our website, newlifespeakers.org. If you don't want to miss our newest upcoming speakers, don't forget to subscribe and turn on notifications. This podcast is self-supporting, so if you enjoy this podcast, please put a dollar or two into our virtual basket. You can find a link for this in the description. And if you know someone in need, please share this with them. Thank you. Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict. Um, I'm pretty nervous being up here, to be honest. Uh, my heart's going like a million miles an hour. Um, and and I, I think I know what that's about. Um, you know, like, I really uh, still want everybody to like me. And I think in my head, I'm convinced that if you really know what's going on, like, between these ears, you're not going to like me. And you're not going to want anything to do with me. And so when I stand up here, like the first five minutes, all I'm thinking is like, what are they thinking about me? And I know that goes on because I've like told my story a bunch of times now. And then once I start talking about myself, it gets way easier. And I forget you guys are even there. So um, hopefully that will happen. And I, I'm glad the young guys are here um, from Serenity. Like I've seen you guys around at the meetings a lot. Um, and I, I hope that when you hear my story, um, like I went down a pretty dark road, but I hope when you hear about like when I was early in it that you can relate to that because I can't predict your future, um, but I can tell you what happened to me. Um, and maybe if you can just relate to that piece of like how I was feeling, what I was thinking when I was in high school and I was in the bathroom and I was getting high and I didn't think it was a big deal. Um, it got really dark pretty quick once I was on my own. Um, so. I'll spend a little bit more time talking about that than I usually do, like those early years. Um, so my name's Andrew. I grew up here in Sinking Spring. Um, my home group's Wilshire, and I actually found out a couple months ago, I used to go to preschool at Wilshire at that church. I used to be in the basement there. My parents would drop me off. And I didn't know that when I made it my home group, so I think that's pretty interesting. You know, Maybe subconsciously I just felt safe in that basement or... Or I don't, or maybe it was the recovery. I don't know. But um, so anyway, um, my home group's Wilshire. Grew up around here. I don't remember feeling like some kind of inner turmoil, like leading up to the first drink. I was like a middle child. Uh, my mom and dad are together. Uh, they both work. Like everything at home is peachy. Like uh, I used to go to the playground in the summer with all the other kids and play and have fun. Um, but I remember, like, I was always a daredevil, like, climbing trees, building forts, like, doing dumb kid stuff. Um, but I had that same attitude about alcohol. Like, when my parents would drink and have parties and have people over, they weren't heavy drinkers. But, like, I saw them having fun and getting drunk and slurring their words. And I knew, like, alcohol did something to your brain and it changed something and you felt a different way. Like, I kind of had that awareness and I remember like consciously when I went to that liquor cabinet when I was like 12 years old and I'm sneaking around I was like thinking like I want to know what that feels like not that like I don't think I was like feeling any kind of bad way I wanted to know what it felt like to feel something different you know what I mean like I was curious and I was daredevil and I wanted to try something 
so I started trying these different alcohols in the liquor cabinet and you know not all at once but like over the course of like a couple weeks like I worked my way through all these different bottles and found some that I actually like could like tolerate the taste of and so I started drinking those a little and I started I didn't get fall down drunk the first time or anything but I started to figure out what a buzz was and I liked how it felt um and I I figured out like if I slammed a couple Coors Lights in the morning before breakfast and then went to school like I had this little secret you know what I mean like I had a little buzz going on I felt good I could talk to people at school you know I'd brag about it with the kids who I knew were cool to like tell that to because they would be impressed and like I like I felt good about it and it was fun and uh and it was working for me you know what I mean like there was no consequence there's nothing wrong with it my parents might be mad if they found out but I was just a kid I was just experimenting um, and like as I got older, um, this kind of behavior continued. I kind of surrounded myself with other people who drank and smoked pot and all that stuff. Um, and I, I remember like having this like like some of my friends would get together at night, and I, I, my parents obviously wouldn't let me on weeknights and stuff like that. So I'd sneak out, and like I couldn't keep depleting my parents' liquor cabinet because. You know, they don't drink that much, so it's going to run out. So me and my friends started getting creative, and we would break into people's cars at night and steal all the change-out cup holders. And we'd, like, roam blocks just doing this for, like, four hours. And then we'd go to Cornstar and cash it all in, and we'd have, like, 200 bucks or 150 bucks, And we'd pay somebody's older brother, and we'd get drunk. And, like, that was cool. That was, like, exciting to me. It felt like I was, like, you know, like a badass or something and then like i'm always pushing the limit so i started to realize like hey some people if you're out all night you'll eventually find some idiot leaves their keys in their car with the car unlocked so i was like yo let's go for a ride man and i was like hop in and i was like trying to impress my friends and have a good time and i was like 15 years old behind the wheel of a stolen car and we're like going pool hopping and like to me this is like this is what life's supposed to be like. Like, it's an adventure. I'm like the main character in a movie or something. And like, I'm having a blast. And again, it's not like depressing. There's no, there's, there's no, like nothing bad is happening around me. And I have the conscious thought, like I remember thinking this when I was like 15, 16 years old, if I get caught, I'm gonna get a slap on the wrist. I might get juvenile detention. It's all gonna get wiped off my record when I'm 18. So who cares? You know what I mean? Like it was worth the risk. Like I thought it out and it was worth it to me. Um, but eventually something did happen. Uh, one of my younger friends who was only 12, who was doing this with us, um, somebody like came out their house and saw the 12 year old in, in his car and he came out and just started beating this kid. And I took off running and like, I had this like realization, like, holy shit, like we're messing with people's stuff and people carry guns and people are angry. And I like, I'm putting my life in jeopardy here for what, you know what I mean? So like, I, I, at that time was like, this isn't right. What we're doing is not right. I got to slow down, got to back off. And, uh, and I did for, for like a while, like I stopped doing those behaviors, but I kept drinking um, kept using and and in school you know people are doing you know all the all the pills they're stealing from their parents um, ecstasies coming around that was one of my favorites um, and I just remember like in study hall or whatever going to the bathroom for 15 minutes rolling dice getting high 
like gambling with my friends, like, and it was a party. Like I felt like one, like I would fit in with the cool kids. Like I was, I was somebody when I was doing that sort of stuff. And, and again, I, I wasn't afraid of the consequences. Like I was, I was doing well in school. Like I presented well, I was a straight A student. Like my parents thought everything was good. Um, but like, I still like was trying to have fun in the way that I knew to have the most fun was to do what you're not supposed to do. Like drinking, gambling, getting high. Like that to me was cool. Um, and like that went on for a while, right? Cause after high school is college in my story. And uh, most of you like have an idea of what college is like. Um, I don't want to spend a lot of time on that. I enjoyed some success. Um, like I got a paper published in school academically. I had full-time jobs most of the time while I was in school. Like I was a hard worker, right? Like self-will can take me places, I thought, you know? So like I was trying to do everything. I was uh, working on my pilot's license over here at Reading Airport. And I would like, I would take a flight once a week. And like I felt, I felt like I was a man, you know? Cause I'm doing all this stuff. I'm having fun in life. But like at the same time, it was like when it was time to drink, I was off to the, it was like, it was like, I was going to be the drunkest one there. I was going, I was going for the blackout, right? Like to me, that was fun. To me, it was fun to wake up the next day and try to piece together the night before, um, in the beginning. Right. And then things start to happen. I start, um, losing my car, my truck. Like I had to call the police a couple times and report my truck missing. And they would say, you, you want to report your truck stolen? And I was like, no, missing. And I'm like trying to explain to them the difference. Like, I, I was like, I let my friend borrow it. Um, and he's, he went back home and he doesn't know where he parked. Uh, he doesn't know the air. I'm trying to explain to them that my truck's not stolen. It's missing. And if they see it, they call me back. And like this, this happened a couple different times in Kutztown. And like that started to scare me a little bit. That started to scare me. I started missing work because I couldn't find my truck. That happened a couple times. Um, I, I, I would find dents on my vehicle and I wouldn't know where they came from. Um, so I started getting a little worried about my drinking at this stage of the game. I had a good job as a, as a park ranger in the summers at Blue Marsh Lake. And like, I love that job because I grew up around here. So I used to drink and smoke in the woods at Blue Marsh. So I knew all the spots. So like my job as the enforcer was to catch people doing this stuff. So I knew all the spots. So I would like, I would like, go not the on the path but i would go through the woods and i would go in the bushes because i saw that that uh volkswagen passat with all the skateboarding stickers on it and i knew what was going on down there right because because i i know how to read these things so so i'm in the bushes with my partner and he's like what are we doing what are we doing and then all of a sudden we hear the beer can and we we hear the lighter and i'm like all right let's go and we like come out of these bushes and we like bust these people who are my peers really they're like people my age doing exactly what i do and i would like come out and i would like take their ids and i would start writing things down and i'd be like i'm giving you a warning because like i didn't want to really bust anybody but like i got a thrill out of doing that but anyway that whole aside that had nothing to do with alcoholism that but but like but like what happened was we would confiscate their alcohol and stuff like oh i'm being recorded i don't know if i we would confiscate their alcohol, and then after, after work, we would take that alcohol and we'd go back to that same spot, and I'd be drinking the alcohol at that same spot. And I started to have this inner conflict, right, 
I didn't do anything about it, but I started to have this inner conflict where, you know, like I'm presenting myself this certain way. I'm enforcing these rules. I'm, you know, I'm like a professional, like uh, it's Department of Defense was my employer. And then I'm going out at night and I'm, I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to be telling other people not to do. Um, but I didn't leave that job or anything. Um, what happened was I uh, graduated college and I got a DUI and I wasn't able to pursue that career anymore. Oh, I skipped an important part of my story. Um, so, um, so anyway, like the, how I characterize my drinking and the book talks about this is, you know, we emerge from a spree remorseful, right? Uh, making promises like not to drink again or not to get drunk again. And, and so in the beginning of my drinking, I didn't really emerge remorseful very much, but as my drinking progressed and my using progressed, something bad would happen. I would have this remorse. I would slow down. I would try to control it. And then once I was satisfied with my ability to control my drinking and be like, okay, I can do this. I can do this. Then I'd start drinking the way I want to drink. And then something bad would happen again. So an example of this is like, um, so there was this girl I was talking to in college and me and my friends go out, drink a fifth, doesn't matter. Um, and I, I, I like bail on my friends cause like I'm doing the whole one night stands college thing, chasing sex because that's more dopamine for me. And I'm, you know, I'm doing that whole thing. And so like I abandoned my friends who I'm hanging out with cause I got a fifth in me and I want to call this girl. So I'm messaging her on Facebook. She's like, all right, you can come over. And she lives with her parents. It's like midnight. And I go over to her house and the basement door, the, I go around the back because she was staying in the basement and the lights are off. That's weird. Door's locked. That's weird. Going through the window. Okay. Nobody's, nobody's down here. I know her brother used to live up in the attic, but he moved out. So maybe she took his room. So I start, I'm not even thinking. I just start walking up through this house and I go up to the attic. And, uh, and nobody's in the attic. And I'm th- by the way, an aside, like in this point of my drinking, I was like nuts and I'd shaved my head and I was like underweight and I just looked insane. So I'm in this person's attic and it's midnight and I hear these voices in the hallway, right? And she's like, mom, grab the hammer. And I'm, I'm like, holy shit, they have no idea that I'm here. Do I jump out the window? Do I try to explain myself? Like, I don't even know what's happening right now. And, and I'm like behind the door and the door starts to open and the sliver of the light is getting wider. And, and I'm just like, I, I'm gonna try to explain myself. Like, I don't even know what happened, but. So I, I poke my head out and I'm like, Jenny, it's Andrew. And she go, her mom screams like terrified, absolute terror in her voice. I think I traumatized her and that's not very funny, but um, absolute terror in her voice in her eyes and she goes do you know this man and jenny goes i know who he is but i don't know what he's doing here and 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 they decide not to call the police not to beat me up but to sit down with me and talk about like why i'm there and uh and i'm showing them these facebook messages and i guess i was messaging like a different girl and i had i had went into her house and all this happened and her mom is an angel and she's talking to me about god i don't know how all this came up she's talking to me about god i'm talking to her about aa and how i need to get back to aa and all this stuff and it was all i believed it at the time but what happened is the very next 
morning. They let me stay the night because they couldn't find my car. They didn't know how I got there. I was parked in the neighbor's lawn. This is kind of a war story, I guess. I should stop. But um, they let me stay there. Next morning, I'm going back to my buddies who I had abandoned the night before, and they're asking me what happened. And I tell them this story, and they're laughing, and it's hilarious. And they go, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to go to AA? And I go, I don't know, man. And my buddy's like, you really should. I'll take you. And w- meanwhile, we were drinking as, as we're telling this story. And so he takes me to AA, and I went to Come As You Are in Fleetwood, ironic, because I came after a few beers and with a story in my head, and I got my hand up to share, and I just started crying, and I started, like, war storing about breaking into this person's house, and nobody thought it was funny. <laughs> and it was, I was so ashamed, and I couldn't finish telling the story, and I, thank God I didn't. Um, but, like, these old-timers came up to me and were, like, yelling at me, and da-da-da, you, you got to take this serious, and... And I was like, see, you guys don't get it. Like, you guys don't get it. You don't know what it's like. Like, you guys have God. Like, I can't get God. Like, and I, I, just, I just walked away from AA. That was like the second time I showed up in AA. I just, like, when I came to AA the first time, I had no DUIs. I was never arrested. I, I still had my family. I still had my job. I came to AA because, like, I knew something wasn't right. I didn't feel right. I was depressed. These things would happen, like, but, but like, I, I didn't have all the things you guys had. You know what I mean? I'm not one of you. And I, like, immediately identified out, and I couldn't get the God thing. Like, I just wasn't interested in that. And so, like, I thought there was still, like, more fun to be had in drinking, I guess. is Like, I stayed sober for a little while, like, maybe three, four, or five months. Um, but I wasn't doing anything. I was going to meetings, but I wasn't doing anything. So the time came, and I drank again. Um, so just to fast forward a little bit after college, like I got that DUI, I graduated college, but I didn't apply myself to any jobs anywhere because I was like, Oh, I'm, I'm a criminal now and nobody's going to want me. That was my attitude. And, uh, of course, like everything is like a veil of tears book talks about that. So like, that was my attitude is like, I'm a piece of shit. Nobody wants me. So I started doing construction, and I took a job where, like, the guy I work with drinks. We drink all the time at work, after work, at lunch. My whole paycheck is going to drinking, and this went on for the next couple years. So there's not a whole lot to talk about. Um, I don't know how I didn't get a D- another DUI. I drove drunk all the time. Um, but I would do these things, like, um, like I, I used to say this, like, drunk Andrew knows not I mean, sober Andrew knows not to drive drunk, but drunk Andrew doesn't know. So I would have to do things like hide my keys from drunk me when I'm sober. Like I would throw them in a coffee cup in the back of my truck or like in a wheel well or some shit like that. And I would try to do it without thinking about it so that when I came back drunk, I couldn't find them. And that actually worked a couple of times and I could walk home from the bar. And, and I, I actually remember, well, I don't want a worse story anymore. Um, so anyway, next couple of years are like that. Nothing major is happening. I'm just spending my money. I'm drinking every day. Uh, it's kind of a blur. And then uh, I had this family beach trip. And uh, without going into specifics, my alcoholism was running the show for me. Um, it really was. And I caused a lot of damage in my family um, that's still not repaired today. Uh, just over a course of like a week being in close quarters with them. Um, like I woke up really hating myself. Um, half my family won't talk to me anymore. Um, self-loathing, 
feeling like like how could I ever do the things that I did um, just I was just at this place where I, I couldn't do it anymore and and like I couldn't face these people anymore and I needed to get away so um, when I came back from the beach I applied to jobs all over the country I did like 60 applications not exaggerating there and I only got one call back and it was for um, a company working in the Bering Sea um, fishing boats um, and I was like, that's the ticket, man. That's exactly what I need. Like, I need to get the hell out of Dodge. I'll be out there. I'll be out at sea. I'll be safe. You know what I mean? I'll be safe from me and all this shit. And, like, if you've ever seen Game of Thrones, if they're going to, like, exile somebody, but instead they send them to the Black Wall, that was my Black Wall. I was like, take me out of this picture and let me just exist somewhere where I can't hurt anybody and I'll be making some money and just I'll feel good about myself because I have this badass job and so that's what I did um but like I didn't stop drinking like I got to Seattle and first thing I did was found a little dive bar you know what I mean and the first day you know not to go into the gory details the first day I showed up to the boat I had two black eyes my forehead was swollen shut like this is my first day showing up to the job and, and uh, these guys don't know me yet. And I show up, my eyes are like barely open and they're purple in my forehead because I, I had a drug deal gone, gone bad in Seattle because I didn't know anybody and I had a thousand bucks in the bank and I'm drunk and I'm bragging about it at the bar and I'm just like, yeah, I want to get a shit ton of Coke and go to the strip club. And somebody took advantage of that, obviously. And today I get to see my part in that. But like back then it was like, poor me, man. So I show up to work like that right and nobody knows me and and like it was too late for them to find a replacement because they got to go um, but i found out i wasn't the only drug addict or alcoholic uh on those fishing boats um they have a term for it they call it sehab it's like rehab but at sea because like you steam from seattle to uh dutch harbor and it's a five-day steam so like that's your withdrawal right there you don't have to work at all you're just on the boat eating and sleeping and sweating and everything else um so like that was my life for the next two or three years was um there were three month contracts be off the boat for like a week go back out three month contract off the boat for a week three month contract then i had three months off so over that nine months of working it was like seven days a week 12 hours a day but i had no living expenses and i was making money so when I got off the boat in Seattle in October or whatever, I had like $55,000 in the bank account and I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict. And so the book talks about self will run riot. And that is for me, that is where that comes into play is I got to do whatever I wanted. You know, to me, $55,000, that was an infinite money. And I'm like, at this stage of the game, I'm doing math and meth is cheap. And I, you know, I'm just in it, right? And uh, like my disease has progressed over these years. Like I'm, I'm kind of breezing over some of this stuff because it's all the same. Um, it's all like the drinking, the remorse, the trying to control it. It's all, it's that pattern over and over again, only it's getting worse. And so, uh, you know, You'd think I would have some peace and some happiness with that money and all that, but like I had this experience over and over again where I would be in a hotel room in the off season 
and I would just like have left the strip club and spent a bunch of money and had a good time. So I thought, and I got the bag of drugs and I think I had, and I'm not talking to my family at this point in my life. Like they're out of it. Like I got nobody and I'm cool with that. I think because I want to be alone. So I have everything I want in life. I got the hotel room. I got the bag of dope and nobody bothering me. And that's all I want in life. Right. But I'm miserable. I'm like completely suicidal. Like I'm depressed. Like, I'm starting to develop psychosis, and that gets worse and worse over the next couple years. Um, like, I, and I'm getting, I have exactly what I want, and it's not working. It's not working, and I'm not even getting the high that I want. I'm not getting off. I'm not, I'm just using and using, and I can't stop. But I didn't see it that way. I'm like, I want to do this. I want to do this. Um, so, so over, over the next couple years, um, Let's see, I got a felony, I assaulted a coworker, um, and I, I went to jail. Um, and that was the end of my fishing uh, for, that, for that period of my life. And um, so my experience in jail, you know, I was at this stage of the game where I was like completely alone for so long and um, I couldn't stop using. And, you know, when I was, and I felt like a piece of shit and so when I was in jail, like I felt like I belonged there and I was like with my people, if that makes sense. Like I felt like I was with other people like me and, uh, and I, I was sober and I was getting three meals a day and I was sleeping, which I didn't normally do. Um, so like I was actually like comfortable in jail and, and for whatever reason, my lawyer waived the right to speedy trial. So I was going to be in there for some time. And so I, I decided to call my, my parents. I don't, I don't know what I was looking for because when they wanted to bail me out, I told them no, I didn't want to get bailed out. So I don't know why I called them, but I called them and they wanted to bail me out. And they're talking to my lawyer and they're trying to arrange bail reduction and all this stuff. And I'm telling my dad no, because I know what it looks like when I'm outside. Like I know what, what's gonna happen, I'm gonna use, I don't have a place to live. I, I got some money in the bank, but like, like I'm having a good time in jail. Like we're playing dominoes, we're playing cards, I'm getting fed, I'm sleeping. Like this is okay for right now. You know what I mean? For the first time, I'm all right. You know, I'm safe. And, uh, and that didn't impress them that much. So <laughs> my bail got reduced and I got bailed out. And then I did some couch surfing and I found an apartment. Um, and at this time my credit score was like 800 because I really cared about that. You know, we all have these things we hold on to to prove we're not alcoholic or we're not a drug addict. My credit score was 800, man. I am good, right? I'm in control. Um, so I got an apartment without anything. They saw my credit score, you're good, here's the keys. Um, and that turned into a trap house like immediately, you know, ripping the walls apart type of trap, you know, it was bad. And my psychosis, uh, which if you don't know what that is, like extreme paranoia, um, I started hearing voices all the time, but I didn't know I was hallucinating. Like I thought I could hear my neighbors through the walls talking to each other about me, about how it was traumatizing. Um, I spent like the last six months not in reality. <laughs> um, and it was a difficult uh, time in my life. And why I brought up the credit is like, I wasn't working anymore. Um, so, I found a drug dealer who would let me PayPal him and use my $40,000 credit limit on drugs. Um, and I proceeded to do that because my court case was still coming. I'd gotten bailed out, but I still had court. My life was over, I thought. I was going to die. I knew that. 
So why not just use and feel good until it's over? Because that's the goal in life. Like the purpose of life is to feel good. And I know it's going to make me feel good. That's what I thought. Um, so, you know, at this point I'm using intravenously, um, speedballing, um, all that stuff. It doesn't matter. Alcohol can do this same stuff. Anyway, my psychosis gets worse. Um, I, I'm beginning to think, you know, people are trying to kill me. Um, and I, I begin to try to hurt other people to protect myself, like from what I think is happening. So like I went after my neighbor with a four iron, uh, and a I tried to with a baseball bat, but somebody stopped me. I would have like homeless people that I knew from when I was like on the streets. I'd have them live with me to help me reality check. Like, Oh, did you hear, are you hearing what I'm hearing? So like my house like got crazy real quick. And when my credit ran out and like I had no money, like I kept saying, oh, I'll go to rehab when the money runs out, right? But I started selling myself to get dope because like I could keep going a little longer. I could keep going a little longer. I just wanted to get what I needed to keep moving, right? Because I didn't know, like I wasn't thinking about AA. Like I guess I kind of thought if I go to rehab, they'll fix me. But like I didn't know any other way so I just kept going and uh and uh yeah things kept getting darker and darker like my psychosis wouldn't let me leave the bathroom I would be in there like crying and just begging them to leave me alone like thinking it was my neighbors like not knowing I was hallucinating but just begging um and I I started to realize sometimes I would get angry sometimes I was sad and sometimes I was really angry and I would break shit and I would like want to hurt my neighbors. And I had this moment of clarity, like I might kill one of my neighbors and they're like innocent people trying to raise their family in this apartment complex. And here's their crazy meth addict neighbor um, who might kill them. So I decided I was going to kill my, myself. And I tried a couple different ways. I tried electrocuting myself in the bathtub. Like I tried, I tried overdosing. Like I was just like, I am a danger to other people. Um, I, uh, anyway, I'm making myself the victim right, right now, and I don't want to do that because that's not what this is about. But I was suffering, right? I was suffering in my addiction. And uh, really, like, one of my friends um, who I used with, actually, uh, he knew I was, you know, having voices telling me to kill people and stuff. And he, uh, he showed up at my apartment. Um, he just showed up. And uh, he brought pizza and beer. And he's like, tell me everything's going to be all right. He, he had a job for us to do the next morning. I'd done some framing with this guy, so I think we're going framing in the morning. So I'm eating pizza. Uh, I'm drinking beer. I'm like, this is, this is going to turn things around. I'll you know, make it a little further down the line. And then in the morning, he's like, oh, don't worry about grabbing your tools. You're good. And I'm pretty sure I had my shoes on the wrong feet. Like, I was like just so out of it and I get in the car and we're driving and he just starts crying and I'm like what's you know what's going on Ivan and, and he said uh we're not going to the job um taking you to the hospital and he told me to tell them everything that I was experiencing and they committed me and uh you know, the amazing, I heard somebody say this last night, the amazing thing about recovery, it was Nick, actually, the amazing thing about recovery is the worst day of our life becomes the best day of our life when we look back. 
And that really was like the best day of my life. Um, you know, and, and the, uh, Ivan, my friend, is still out there using and suffering and in and out of jail. And, you know, I, I wish the best for him and it breaks my heart, but he saved my life that day. And, um, so that began my journey. And I wish I could say like, okay, everything's good now. I found recovery and things are great. Um, but that's not how this works. Um, you know, I didn't, I was, I hallucinated for the first eight months of my recovery. So like, I didn't trust the doctors. Um, I thought they were trying to like keep me committed for life. And I tried to lie and get my way out of there. And, and luckily they contacted my family. They told them to find rehab, whatever. They found Karen and uh, I checked myself out as soon as I could. They made me interview with somebody from the state. I sounded good. They let me go. Um, even though I was still batshit crazy. Um, and, but my mom took me to Karen and, and, and she had a sober companion. She was actually afraid to spend any time alone with me because of what my voices were telling me to do to people. But um, she hired somebody, a sober companion, who came out to the airport and uh, took me to Karen. And like, that man was a blessing too, because I was like losing my mind on the plane the whole time. But uh, I want to stop talking about that. So, um, so I get to Karen. It's all kind of a blur. Um, it's all kind of a blur. But one thing I do remember is I had this moment in a small group with a very good friend of mine. And uh, it was a, the assignment was to like write a few things down that are like weighing down on you um, or resentments or something. I don't remember specifically. But I had written down about the lines of the cafeteria and how they improperly manage, you know, so the lines are too long. And I had written down, I wrote down a bunch of bull. And, and what happened was like I had this thought as we're going around the room. And today I believe it's my higher power intervening, but I had this thought like, what are you doing? Like you're in rehab, like look at everything you've been through. And these people are trying to help you and you're, you're giving them bullshit. And like, I knew I couldn't do that anymore. So, so I had like, you know, told them about my charges. I told them about like this crazy shit that happened at home with my family. I told them about like my prostituting myself. I told them about like, so like when it was my turn to share, I like crumpled up that paper and I spoke from the heart and I said like what was really keeping me sick, right? So I trusted God and I cleaned house, right? And what I found was like nobody was disgusted with me in that circle. Like people looked at me with compassion and if anything, we bonded in that moment and felt closer and like people related, maybe not specifically to what I did, but with how I felt. And, and the craziest part is like, the next guy, when it was his turn to share, he crumpled up that piece of paper he had and he shared from the heart too. And like that to me was trust God, clean house and help others. And like, I didn't know it at the time, but that, that was like a pivotal moment in my recovery when I, when I was like, I gotta stop bullshitting everybody. I got like, we create in these rooms, right? We create that atmosphere and community that, that like, it's whatever we put out there. So if I'm putting real shit out there, it, and being vulnerable with all of you, it gives you permission to do the same back with me. And like, it creates an atmosphere of healing, um, which I think is like important. And we can just sit here and bullshit each other and not talk about how we're feeling. Like me wanting you all to like me and then telling you how I was like, I don't want to be vulgar. So selling myself, like, like this, 
two things aren't incompatible. I can feel that way and I can still have the courage to tell you like where I'm at or what happened. So like I had that lesson in Karen. That's like the only thing I remember to be honest, um, besides that the food was good. Um, and so like I went to sober living after that and I had a long journey in sober living. Um, and I, I truly believe I needed that because uh, yeah, first eight months of my recovery, I did not get a sponsor. I did not work the steps. I showed up at meetings. I sat on the periphery. I didn't talk to any of you. I just talked to the guys in my sober house. You know what I mean? Like I didn't, I was, ha- I was like having the same experience I had in jail. I'm good. I'm getting fed. I'm going to sleep. I'm safe. That's all I want in life. Right. But like, there's so much more that's offered in these rooms. If we like shut up and like let somebody help us and start doing the work um so like what changed for me um what changed for me is like i i had to go serve my jail sentence and i did five months and i was in a cell in my own head for 23 hours a day because it was covid by myself and all this recovery shit went out the window um i just wanted to get high again i just wanted to get high and I, I knew what it might lead to, and I didn't care. I just wanted to get hot. And I realized that, like, when I'm on my own and I don't have any of this, I'm not doing the things you guys are doing, like, I'm going to drink. I'm going to get high, and it's just going to keep getting bad. So, like, when I got back from that stint, like, I jumped in. I got a sponsor. I started going through the book with him. And, like, this foreign language that you guys were talking in AA started to make a little sense when I started doing the work. You know what I mean? When I start going to the book, seeing how it applies to me, seeing what the words really mean or what they mean to me. Um, no, what they really mean, not what they mean to me. But like when I start doing this stuff, like, and I, I can be involved and I can get connected and I have the same experience when I actually talk to you people in the room and not just my little circle, but I broaden my horizons. Like I can have that experience I had at Karen. You know what I mean? We can form tight bonds. We can be brothers in arms, you know, same way it was at rehab. And, uh, and it, it wasn't all, you know, it wasn't all great, um, in recovery. Uh, but as long as I stayed plugged in and, and asked for help, um, things got better and I didn't have to do anything alone. Um, which is what I tried to do my whole life. Self-sufficiency, you know, um, from a young age, I was working when I was in college, I was working when I was in, you know, I was trying to like be the director of my own life that whole time. And, and it just, it didn't work. You know what I mean? That's the experience I had when I started like looking at step two and step three is, you know, when I get my way and I get to, uh, you know, self-will, like I'm in that hotel room wanting to blow my brains out, like having everything I want and like not understanding. It's not computing. So like I, I, I always jot down like a couple of things in recovery that like are meaningful to me because I don't want to talk about what it was like the whole time. But like one of the my favorite things that somebody told me was that I'm powerless, but I'm not helpless. You know what I mean? We have a program of action here in these rooms. You know, um, there's no excuse to, to, to not take advantage of it. I mean, the book says some of us are maybe constitutionally incapable, but like my experience was like, maybe I was constitutionally incapable that first eight months when I wasn't doing anything. Maybe I couldn't because I was nuts, but like, that's temporary. You're not constitutional. I wasn't constitutionally incapable forever. You know what I mean? And I kept coming around and I started seeing hope, 
you know, I sat in that chair and I heard all these people talking about how their lives got better once they started working with a sponsor and doing the steps. And I started realizing like, you know, all these people are getting better and I'm not. Like they have something going on that's working in their lives and I don't. And like, I wanted to try something different. Um, I've shared this before that like, you know, um, the way my attitude when I was using, like I could go, I went and saw a therapist cause I was depressed when I was using. He has his credentials on the walls, right? He went to college. He's worked with a million people just like me. And he prescribes me an antidepressant. But I refuse to take it because I'm not going to take your medication, right? But I, I'll go to somebody's tent in Seattle and take whatever they're handing me out of a bag. And that I'll take because his credentials are better than yours. Like that, that was my attitude all through life. And I had to look at that. You know what I mean? Some of us tried to hold on to old ideas. Like I had a lot of old ideas. Self-will, man, self-will, self-sufficiency, not trusting anybody who had authority or credential. Like, that wasn't in the game for me. Um, but, like, I'm not helpless about my recovery. There's things you can do, and we talk about them all the time in the meetings, you know what I mean? There's disciplines in this book. Step 10, 11, and 12. Uh, step 10 and 11 are, like, daily practices that you can do, that I do on a regular basis. I, I do, like, a 10th step with a bunch of my friends, the great thing about that is it's not just what it does for me. It's not like all selfish. It's I get to read what's going on in their day, right? And they get to read what's going on in my day. And like, if we're really being honest, we get to know each other a little bit and we get to bond. We get to bring that stuff. Like they remind me about stuff like, oh, I got to apologize to my mom because, you know, she texted me and I ignored her for two days and that like there's this bonding that happens and this mutual growth and it's like creating a community around yourself of healing which is like i think what we try to do here um so recovery is a gift i truly believe that um like i you know i i don't think i had anything to do with me getting here um i don't think i had anything to do with me jumping into the pro like maybe i i did the legwork but i really think that god brought me here um and you know, as I think all my suffering was required of me for me to learn. Um, and I hope that it doesn't have to be that way for you guys. Cause, um, cause like, like I showed up in AA the first time, no, no arrests, nothing, had everything, had family, things were good, but I didn't feel right. When I showed up the second time, I lost everything. I was out of my mind. Um, I was a felon, you know, my family wasn't talking to me. Like shit sucked, you know what I mean? And that's just the road that I took, um, and I wish I had gotten it sooner, but I know words aren't going to change your journey that much. Um, but what will change your journey is finding a higher power. It's something we talk about all the time and something that I struggled with and turned me off of this program when I got here. My experience with finding God was um, that self-will. Self-will does not work for me, so there has to be something else. And in the beginning, I could not fathom like a spiritual creator or something like that. But what I could fathom is there's a room full of people who have been through what I've been through or who, who know somebody who has or have seen the things that I'm dealing with. And I could get behind the idea that these people could help me. So I came to believe in a power greater than myself that could restore me to sanity. I came to believe... Um, in AA, like I came to believe that this program can change my life because I saw it work in, uh, in your lives, like time and time again. When I opened my eyes and like stopped trying to see how you're different than me, 
like I, I started to see that like it's working for you guys like it could work for me um, so the other thing I mean this is you hear it over and over it's a daily reprieve because my understanding of powerlessness is like yeah I can say today like I'm not, I'm not going to drink or use drugs right but what happens between today and tomorrow in my head like I, I'll change my mind you know what I mean if you leave me alone, like away from these rooms and like not talking to God long enough, I will convince myself that I do want to drink and that I do want to have drugs. And like I've had that experience in recovery. Um, so for me, it's like about doing the things, um, staying in the middle of AA. I, like I, my favorite part of the program is like there's a whole chapter on working with others. And like I, I'm blessed to have four guys right now and it's it's opened my eyes so much to you know the different paths we're all on but also like like I have one guy who like for for a while was not convinced he was an alcoholic like we've only started working together recently and like we spent a lot of time talking about what's an alcoholic and like that was super helpful for me to remember um that it's not my arrest it's not my DUIs it's 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 not any of that stuff it's you know, I get a craving, you know, when I drink, when I drink a beer, I get thirstier, you know what I mean? And, and even when I don't drink a beer, when I come home from work and it's hot out and, you know, when I don't have this anymore, but like early on all the time, like that's, that's a craving and non-alcoholics don't have that. You know what I mean? Um, I have an obsession once I start, um, like I like water and I'll, I could drink like half that water bottle but you won't find me locked up in a hotel room with a case of water at the end of this. Like, that's not, like I'm obsessed with alcohol and with drugs. I take a little bit and I'm gone. You know what I mean? Maybe not immediately. Maybe I'll have this illusion of control to prove to you or somewhere someone else, but like eventually that's where it leads me. So like I have a daily reprieve as long as I stay plugged in and that service, that's unity, it's a triangle, which I can't remember right now because I'm nervous. Um, the last thing I really want to say, um, I forgot about this. Um, when I was at Karen, the idea of never using again was way too much for me. I know everybody says one day at a time. I gave myself a commitment that I wasn't going to use for a year. Because I, like, even when I was using, I would tell myself, if I could just put it down for a year, imagine where my life would go. I always thought I was smart. Like, even when I was, even when I was, like, hating myself and stuff, I still thought I was smart. I still thought, like, I could be something if it wasn't for all of this, you know, the world. But what you guys taught me in the fourth step is, I don't, the world doesn't have to change for me. I have to change for the world. But, um, so, like... I gave myself this commitment. I was going to do this for one year. Now, the first eight months, I didn't have the commitment that I was going to do this. I just said I was going to be dry, you know, sober. But that wasn't working. I was miserable. So then I was like, okay, if I'm going to stay sober, like, I have to start doing this stuff. Um, so, like, if, if forever is too much for you, yeah, you can do it one day at a time. But for me, like, I latched onto that year thing. What I found at my year sober is that, like, it's not that life all of a sudden was like wonderful, but like I was, it was getting better. It was getting better and I was, I was feeling hopeful and I was on a journey and I was making progress and I didn't want to stop. You know what I mean? Like uh, one of the favorite, my favorite things I heard in AA is uh, 
Drinking was a pleasure, then it became a a habit, then it became a necessity. Recovery was a necessity, became a habit, became a pleasure. And like, that's been true for me. Like it was total necessity. I did not want to be here. I did not want to talk to y'all. I did not want to tell you what I was thinking, but I did it anyway. And then it became a habit. And then like, now I enjoy this stuff. Like I really do. Like, even though I'm nervous and all that to talk and like, it's, it's actually like what I look forward to. You know what I mean? Like, I don't care much about money right now. I got enough money to do what I want to do. I don't care much about sex because like I'm a little traumatized to be honest, but like, I don't, I do need to do a better job with my family because like I avoid them sometimes and I'm still working on that. But like recovery for me has become fun. Like, because there's growth, there's healing. I get to be the type of man I want to be. Like, um, I had a lot of shame when I got into recovery, like a lot of shame. It's the biggest thing. I still work on it. Um, but like one of my favorite things I heard somebody say that really like stuck out to me early in recovery is every day is an opportunity to be the kind of man that you want to be. I don't have to define myself by like my worst mistake ever. That's not who I am. Like to you guys, I am who am who I am right now. You know what I mean? And I can I can be proud of who I am standing in front of you guys today because I'm doing this work and I'm on this journey and that like motivates me to stay on this journey. You know what I mean? So um and and the the I'll shut up after this. Um this is my first time in recovery, and I'm not saying that to like boast and if you're struggling with relapse and all that stuff. That's not what this if you're new right? You don't have to relapse. You don't have to go back out. I'm not saying I'm never going to use again. Hopefully I don't. Hopefully I can keep wanting to do the things or hopefully I can keep forcing myself to do what I need to do. But like I'm a couple years sober and life is much better than it was. And I can look at myself in the mirror and I, I can be proud of who I am. I still have growth to do, especially like in my relate personal relationships with my family. Like I said, um, but you know, I'm starting to feel good about myself and, and about life. And I don't think it's false pride. I think it's the result of what we do in these rooms. We pick each other up. We hold each other accountable. Um, and, and I am so grateful to have like all the love and support that I found here in these rooms. And it, it means the world to me. And that's all I have. Thanks. Thanks for checking out this episode of the New Life Speakers Podcast. Please remember that our group is self-supporting through its seven tradition. Donations can be made by clicking the link on our website, newlifespeakers.org. You can also find a link for this in the description below. Tune in next week for a new speaker, and thanks for listening.